I carried so many memories. And I mean, I, I'm not just an ex-prisoner, I'm also an ex-professional. And over the years, I, I, have, I have seen... I've, Comrades stayed in prison. Comrades stayed outside of prison. Uh, to me, it's it, it was a particularly painful period, but they are comrades who died in the struggle. I travelled to Belfast frequently and uh, on the motorway, and I passed the prison, and I always glance in with a sort of a shiver and an okay. I, I I think of some of the men that died, but I think, of course, of all the others that lived. And uh, there, there's a certain th- I suppose resilience in the human mind as well that you have to put things into the back of your mind and move on and um, look at what's happening today. If, I think if we don't do that there's a, I, I think that's one of the great facilities of the human mind is the ability to forget. I was charged with uh, with killing a member of the UDR, the Ultra Defence Regiment. Uh, I was held awaiting trial for about 12, 13 months and sentenced in December of 1978. And at that stage, I was then taken to the H-blocks in Long Cash. When I was taken to the... At that time, it was H-block 3... The protest in Long Cash had been underway for a couple of years, and it had, <clears throat> it had reached. In some ways, it had reached uh, a fairly developed stage. It had started initially with Kieran Nugent was the first prisoner to refuse to wear prison uniform, conform to prison rules. Uh, by the time I had reached there, the protest had escalated from just purely. A refusal to wear clothes, prison clothes, which then meant that the only uh, the only clothes the prisoner had was a prison blanket, hence the name, the blanket protest. It had escalated from simply a blanket protest to become also uh, a dirty protest. They brought this ball of evidence, which amounted to simple, a verbal statement to the fact that they, I suppose it says, OK... I don't know, but you never make it stick. This was a verbal statement. It was the only what they called evidence no, that I would have had. And against this back when the judge found me guilty. Everybody was just straight through, just like a, exactly like a conveyor belt, into charge through the, through the interrogation centres, into remand in the jails, and from the jails into the haste blocks, and from the haste blocks onto the protest. And that exactly was the line. I, I followed that line along with hundreds of others. move us from one wing to the next by way of cleaning the cell and moving from one wing to the other involved men moving naked from one wing to the other um, while the search was in progress, then the move, the wing shift was in progress as a man would move naked prisoner move naked from one wing to the other, halfway between the wings the prison authorities then ins- insisted on uh, Examining an anal search over, uh, not so much a search, but an anal, an anal examination by means of forcing the prisoner to squat over a mirror. Going for a visit, people were, prisoners were frequently subjected 
to um, brutal treatment on the way to a visit or back from a visit because again um, men were searched and these were fairly intimate searches people were taken uh, taken and forced to, to stand naked uh, raise their arms, turn around both humiliating and on occasions uh, violence was used men were asked to open their mouths if they didn't open them wide enough they would be punched in the head or punched on the on the body um, different occasions uh, th- th- this would happen and it really depended on the mood and the humour of the prison officers which in a lot of cases was also um, dependent on the climate on the outside. I I have to be fair that at that time uh, the IRA had a campaign of shooting prison officers. Prison officers were being shot. Moreover, the IRA was also uh, engaged in a campaign against the uh, RUC, UGR, British Army, many of whom had relatives on the prison service. Uh, We can understand why these men could have been angry uh, led them to brutality I mean I, I wouldn't for a second deny that they had uh, that there could have been cause for their for their anger and frustration but uh, they, they took their frustrations out on prisoners rather than anybody on the outside It was a time uh, just after I Neve I think was was killed. He was killed, of course, by the NLA, my own organisation, which I knew nothing about. And in fact, for, for uh, the day he was killed, the news came in, but it would have filtered down into the blocks, and everybody thought at the time the provost had killed this year, this man. And it was held down there for 30 days, and uh, it was only down three or four days, and it was brutally beaten by three or four screws. And I know the names of the screws in this day, and told me giving a really bad beating. And actually, the tried my blood was everywhere in the cell. I was naked. I mean, I had one blanket, and these two or three screws beat me. I mean, nearly for nearly ten minutes, knocked me out, and I bruised all of my body and all of my my testicles too, which I tried to defend. And I actually fought back, you know, and I managed to fight back and and and. and uh, uh, assault a couple of them as well but when they're naked they're very very scared of course but this was another brutal beating and I thought it was all related to some sort of what they call vengeance for Iron Eve which I had nothing to do with whatsoever I didn't even know about whatsoever you know however they got their pound of flesh would I say and uh, they thought this would break me but I, 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 st- I stood my ground and I, I, I stayed with, uh, even though I was isolated and, and, and very frightened young man you know, very young, young fella very frightened I stayed on so again all this here was I had greed myself on my mind, and this was the persistence, you know, and, and I knew this could this couldn't this couldn't go on and on and on. There was a constant, all pervasive feeling of tension and fear through the, the years on the blanket, and in many time, many cases, waiting for violence is is much more destructive of the mind than the actual suffering of violence Uh, there is nothing as daunting as listening to cells open one after the other and to hear someone being beaten in cell 25 24 23 22, 21 you knowing that you're in cell 5 or 6 waiting for the numbers to be counted down, waiting your turn 
to suffer violence. Uh, it, it, it's something that tests the nerve of the strongest and, and the bravest. Another thing which I remember it was the beating. He and other men getting beating. And he had a rumble in the cell and the, and, the, and the slap of the flesh and boys, boys shouting out for help, you know what I mean? Like maybe three or four squeeze beating one man or two men. Boys being dragged out of the cells beating. And I remember looking out through that we had sort of... Uh, we had... Uh, I would say it knocked out small holes in the wall of the Jason, where the door would have made the jam, you know, the jam on the wall. We could look out, I remember seeing bears getting beaten out there, you know, and so we were full of, we were very much full of, you know, vengeance ourselves and hatred for these people, you know what I mean, and vice versa. I mean, I remember one particular incident where a prison officer, a woman prison officer was killed coming out of Armagh jail, where I'm from. And uh, this had there was three or four of them coming out during dinner and was grenades were thrown by an NLA uh, IRA joint operation and uh, one of them was uh, a woman's kid was, I think it was the youngest one maybe in her tw- late 20s and two or three injured and was a, was a gun and grenade attacked right on, on, on these people coming out of the jail during the dinner break and uh, when that happened a lot of the screws came down and they were saying to me that we would get revenge and I mean that's not and frightening the hell you know me you know what? I knew the country done it, and I knew these here bastards who done it, and I knew these scum who done it, and so on. I hadn't a clue. I mean, I was locked up twenty four hours a day. I had one visit a month. How would I would know? But uh, the years went on. Four, three years, two years, three years, four years, then into nearly our fifth year on the blanket, and we all thought it was going to be over within a year on dirt protests. Terrible conditions, you know, at land in wintertime, you know, snow coming through your window and falling on your blanket, been waking up with snow, maggots from the from the, the deteriorating and rotten food, which was you no know, kept heat on the corner of the cell. Maggots crawl up and down the what do you call it, the, the the mattresses on the floor crawling into sometimes even under your body, you know. I mean these were all small maggots which were through out to the birds and fed. That's one thing we noticed about the birds around the long cash. We got to know every single bird because we couldn't see anything else. But uh, this, the deprivation, the sanitary deprivation was a big thing. And we said to ourselves, but how long is this going to go on? What, what have we to do? We've done everything we could within the jail. We've brought us so far, done everything. What are we going to do? And then we realised that never be a hunger strike on the cart. The first hunger strike began in October. I would have been aware for certainly two months before that that I would have been part of the first hunger strike. Um, I remember before it became publicly known that we were going on hunger strike, Brendan Hughes, Bobby Sands talked to me about it. Uh, I actually was on the wing with Brendan Hughes. Brendan was the IRA commanding officer in the prison. Bobby Sands, I think, perhaps was the, his, his deputy. Bobby was also on the wing with me and um, Brendan McFarland and I can't remember Brenton was also one of the senior people and I remember the three of those would have spoken with me about the the upcoming hunger strike and I, I would have been aware of it before the public would have known about it. I believe we all realised that it was a situation that couldn't continue and I remember on occasions going through wing searches, uh, beaten up through moves, uh, wing moves, sitting 
hours naked in a cell uh, without any uh, bedding or anything in cells, saying that this is a situation that just cannot continue indefinitely as this. We either have to surrender or fight. And I think that had eventually dawned on many of us. It certainly had dawned on me. And when it come around, there was a certain... Uh, in, in some ways, we there was an almost a huge responsibility. It was, a, it was frightening, but it was also a relief in the sense that we were forcing the situation towards a climax, that we were no longer sitting passively. to a certain extent uh, the prison guards come around and unlike their usual uh, nasty abrasive treatment as they delivered the breakfast they had been instructed very carefully to get the name and the prison number of the prisoner refusing food because they were not sure which of us were refusing was going to go on the hunger strike the wing I was on, two of us were out to go on hunger strike, Brendan Hughes and myself. And I remember the prison officers, unlike other times when they come round body and bawling, uh, I could hear them opening Brendan Hughes's cell and very, very courteously asking, are you sure you're not taking food? Can we confirm that? Uh, to me, it seemed very, very strange to hear them speak so civilly. And eventually they come round to my cell and again I said, no, I'm on hunger strike, I'm refusing food. And rather than the what was their usual disdainful, uh, sarcastic manner, they, it wasn't so much respectful but as total concentration because they had been instructed. It was very important to get the names of the hunger strikers and the... Uh, they asked me to confirm that and I said, yes, I'm on hunger strike and away they went. They actually left my breakfast. But I, which I didn't touch and that was the start for me of the hunger strike first meal refused and what the prison st- officers would do would be they would leave the breakfast it would stay there until dinner time they would then come in they would take the breakfast and they would leave the dinner they would then come back at tea time they would take the dinner leave the tea and then at supper time they would come in and they would take the tea and leave the supper and it was there overnight. The supper remained in the cell overnight until the next morning when the cycle started again. Uh, the last previous day's supper was taken away and the breakfast, the, day, the next day's breakfast, left in its place. And uh, that continued throughout the 53 days I was in hunger strike. I had heard people say that after a few days in hunger strike, one's appetite goes. It wasn't my experience. I was hungry for about 44 or 45 days. And uh, after 10 days in the cell, I was moved then to what was known as a as a special wing in the hitch blocks, which was clean in bed. We, we had our, we had then bad stage. We, we, we had beds, we had blankets, we were given pyjamas. And uh, I was there. I was also then allowed reading material for the first time in a couple of years. I had magazines and newspapers, and uh, 
for the next, say, 30 days, it seemed to be every time I opened a newspaper, I could see ads for fish and chips, burgers, potatoes, and I could see the most marvellous cookery sections. I never read cookery recipes. I never had, and I haven't since. But I, I took a fascination for reading cookery recipes. But um, th- my experience was that the hunger remained for about 40 it was 44, 45 days. Now, it wasn't that the hunger magically disappears. My health dramatically deteriorated after 45 days. The only different bodily functions basically just collapsed. And at that stage, instead of being hungry, I was feverish. I was uh, vomiting. Uh, My kidneys were in a process of failure. Uh, the enzymes were building in my stomach. I was uh, duodenal bleeding and poisoning. It was a fairly nasty situation. But rather than being hungry, I was just sick. I remember, very, I remember lucidly uh, lying uh, on a mat, on a, on a piece of sponge on the floor with the blankets on me and trying to keep warm. It was cold. And uh, the first the first week was 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 really bad, and 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 that you, you felt your stomach caving in. I could actually hear my stomach at night. It kept me awake, all this rumbling within my stomach and the whole sort of my insides, my intestines adjusting to were being deprived of you no know, food essentials, being deprived of the the the, the things the, the very essence of their survival, food, and uh, trying to. Come to terms with this all in my mind that he was my, I was, and my mind was disturbing my body, and my body was going into survival mode. Do you understand? I remember when I was thinking to myself, you know, how were people getting on with it? Were they making love? You know, but outside there was this here, there was always this surreal aspect or dimension to the whole thing where life was going on just outside the walls. Screws were coming in talking about Christmas. You know, the prison officers, the medical officers were coming about doing their daily chores in a very functional way. You know, they come in and wash us. They would, uh, for example, place the, 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 the fleeces. These were you no know, sheep, sheepskin fleeces under, under our bodies to stop our bones breaking through the skin. They would grease the different joints of our bodies so the bones, the bones wouldn't break through the skin again. Uh, but we had the priests in. We had members of our family coming in. And yet all this here, sort of what they call it, uh, an array of life, and, you know, which was taking place all around us. And yet here we were, still continuing today. I wasn't a devout person in terms of religion, but I remember praying to God, you know, to try and help me through this year. I know I wouldn't have been over, overtly religious in any way, you understand, but I felt that the power of not, not so much well, prayer and contemplation and, again, my political motivation to try to keep me on. But, I mean, every day you were coming towards the end, you were conscious of that fact that you were coming towards the end, you are coming to that threshold and you're going to have to make a decision when they're going to say to you, look, 48 hours and you're out you're away you're going to be in the cell you're going to be buried and the cell you're going to be buried in the graveyard and there are going to be flowers in your grave for Christmas you're not see Christmas this is December no 1980 and you are trying to come to terms with this here aspect of it no of envisioning yourself I used to sit down and maybe envision my own funeral envision myself you know my own coffin and see myself in the, what do you call it the you know, in, in a room in my home in, in, in Dromarg, in Armagh, and people coming in. I used to dwell on these things. They were terrible morbid, but they couldn't help it because this was reality it was facing me. 
we didn't know what to expect altogether what to expect and uh, some of the tales we had told that as I said to you people telling me that you, you lose your appetite I, I, I didn't uh, some of the things that did happen for some reason uh, my senses uh, seemed to to intensify my sense of smell seemed, seemed to magnify I could smell uh, at one stage I could smell the paint on on the chairs uh, totally incredible in the sense that that you, you might smell a, 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 the paint on a chair for an hour or two after it would be freshly painted but I could these were chairs well worn chairs I could smell the paint on the chairs I could smell disinfectant that that, that, that was at the end of the corridor The first thing you smell is your breath come back up. It's rotten. Your insides are rotten. Uh, your honest closes up. There's no more ice cream coming out. You understand? And your bowels are... Not your, your, your bowels are tightening up too, right? Your stomach is shrinking. There's a smell exuding from your body. This smell... Is, I always remember it, and I used to always sort of equate it with the smell you awake at a week of a dead body you know, the, smell of, the, the smell of rotting flesh because I mean what's, what's happening Think, you're dying you're, you're starving your body and you are, you're in the process of dying even though you're still alive you know very much and you want to live being compelled to carry on you no know, dying for, for, for whatever the reason may be you understand and so on and the fear until eventually um I suppose towards the very end I was drifting in and out of consciousness I was having hallucinations on occasions I remember at one stage thinking that I could hear uh, in the distance somebody playing a Kelly music I thought it, it went on for hours and I thought at one stage that it was being done deliberately to aggravate me until I eventually found out oh, a few days after the hunger strike that there wasn't Kelly music within miles <laughs> of where I was, that it was some trick of the mind. Uh, I suppose by that stage. Uh, not maybe all that hard to explain. The The body is an, a, a fantastically sophisticated machine and nature provides that with the deprivation of food, the, the body starts to use up the least vital of its assets first the fat and then the muscle and then the, the bone marrow and eventually it works its way through to the um, to the to the, the organs of the body uh, kidneys liver uh, pancreas eventually the heart and brain are the last two organs to go and on some occasions that has almost happened in that sequence. Uh, the problem, of course, is that occasionally that the process can be short-circuited, that the body deteriorates rapidly. In my case, what was happening was my kidneys started to fail because my kidneys were failing. My body was incapable of um, clearing the, the poison and as the, as the poison built up, then instead of it being discharged normally, it was recirculated through the bloodstream. 
and um, so it meant that my body was being poisoned from top to bottom. This caused um, headaches. It caused me to have um, pins and needles sensation in the tips of my fingers and toes, and uh, gradually that that sensation started to travel up through my body from the fingertips into my hands and then towards the elbows and from my toes to my ankles and so on. And the other thing, of course, was that um, I started to vomit the the the, the bales and the, the enzymes and whatever is normally produced by the intestines, which eventually then started to tear at the walls of the intestines and caused the intestines to bleed. So I was vomiting blood and bile. And at that stage, basically, I was in fairly uh, enormous pain. Um, it's, it's a very difficult process. Uh, as I say, the hallucinations, the unconsciousness, the the routine pain-wracked uh, experience. Uh, and uh, that was coming towards the end. The hunger strike ended on the 18th of December. I think it was a Friday. I think it was about six or half past six on the Friday evening. Uh, I was in a drifting between consciousness and unconsciousness, and the other five uh, hunger strikers were still conscious and lucid. So they gathered around Brenton to hear of the decision, and the five of them talked it over, and Brenton told them of his decision told them of the reasons for his decision and they continued to talk about it and chaplains started to arrive and different things and uh, they talked and they talked and they talked and nobody thought to tell me for I think maybe two hours that the hunger strike was over <laughs> and and I remember the, the prison medics coming in to me and asking me to take some medicine and I said no no, we're still on, on hunger strike. And he said, no, you're not. And I said, yes, I am. And he said, well, I think we'll have to send for Brenton. And I remember the uh, Brenton coming, coming into the into the war to me. And I, at that stage, because the lights, the light was, was, was so painful on my senses that I had the, had, had, had the lights turned off. I, I remember lying in the bed with my hand across the my, my one good eye. <laughs> one eye was blind, the other was... I could just see through vaguely and I had to close it to keep the light out. And I remember just uh, just on the sort of the peripheral vision seeing Brenton and I knew the figure so well and, of course, I knew the voice saying it so I'd sent it a couple of hours ago, come off. And uh, I said, that's it, fair enough, if Brenton says it. But... Uh, that, that for me, it 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 had ended then, and uh, there was a. Uh, immediately, we started to receive medical treatment, injections, a few injections, and uh, believe it or not, the doctor then prescribed uh, not any type of drip feed or high protein. He, he, of believe it or not, he prescribed scrambled egg. I remember it very poignantly, and he said, "Next, we we have here, we've got something here, a solution here. We can, we're gonna call this off. This was on a Thursday, you know, on a Thursday on the 18th of December, 1980. 
and I remember that night very well and remember how it was broadcast on downtown radio within hours people were waiting on the news what's happening there was so much a, a big this is a big euphoric, very euphoric time you understand and very uh, how do you say electric atmosphere outside and inside the jail and our, our people come in and visit us more I actually had the first visit from my brother who was also in jail I hadn't seen him for years and years and they brought him up from the, from the compounds to the prison to, to the hospital to visit me he hadn't seen me for years he didn't even recognise me I was just a wraith a wraith and with, with a, a massive beard and it was like a sort of what he called someone says and now looking out of a, 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 a navy a navy voice you know you can hardly see my face I shrunk that much and this year this year massive beard something like a bit like Rasputin maybe after he was dead <laughs> you understand but in Britain he's called off and I realised I realised the whole serious nature of the thing and the decision he had made and I supported him in that decision at the time and I realised that we, we, I, we had a solution if, if uh, Brandon had read the document others had read the document and we knew that there was a, a, a potential for a really good, to get this whole thing resolved without any further life being lost either inside the jail or outside the jail and that's how it ended that hunger strike and the rest as you know is history the, 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 the different it was not implemented it wasn't the thing was not imposed or implemented in any way. Well, they tried to, but it fell very, very short. It was very, we, we were very much short-changed, big time. We were short-changed, big time. First of all, we had been cooped up for almost five years in a cell, 24 hours a day. We had lived in bits of, we had lived and and and, and slept on pieces of sponges on the floor. There's no nothing in the cell. I mean, try to uh, envisage or, invo- or evoke the images of the hunger strike, not the hunger of the blanket protests at that time, as they were portrayed across the world and, and throughout the, in the world media. You've seen stark, empty cells, bearded, rust-beaten type figures standing in corners with blankets around them against windows, and all you had was a, a piss pot or a water gallon on the floor and two pieces of sponge and each, ha- each man had three three uh, very three rough uh, b- prison blankets around them so let, let us out onto the yards and we had men walking more than nine steps for the first time I mean it was your, your cell is nine feet long and you had maybe five no six steps six steps back but men tried to walk they could walk slowly and they had to sort of what they called adjust they physically adjust themselves to the, the new environment straight away immediately there and then and men would walk slowly but other boys actually thought it was a matter of coming out and taking up the sort of the, the sort of behaviour physical behaviour as, as it had been, been before they went on and they tried to run they ran about 10 yards and they crept over they tumbled over like tumbler pigeons in the air when he made on the ground because they had, their bodies had not been used to walking a sustained distance. They'd been so confined, cooked up like chickens in a hatchery. And as you know, when you like, if you like, if you like chickens out of a hatchery, they're inclined to run up against all the wires. I remember when they tried to play a game of football. And this was, this was a, a novelty. This, you know, having a game of football was something like, you know, when you throw them by giving their freedom when they put a ball in the yard. I haven't seen a ball for many years. Someone spent five years in a blanket. And then they would kick the ball or run. And men were falling about like ten pin bowls all over the yard. 
where he's shaved for the first time in years, right? Everybody had big beards, right? We only seen each other at mass once a week, if we were lucky, if we were to go to mass. And everybody had long hair, big beards, and the first thing a lot of them done was to get it shaved off, right? So we were still locked up in the cells at the time, and the boys were left to cells and went up and got their beards and all shaved off and their hair trimmed down. And then we all met out in the yard, and nobody knew each other. We said, who are you? And the rat looked, looked very intently and keenly to try and see who this person was. I mean, half their faces, all you seen was maybe from their cheeks up to the eyes. Can you imagine something like 300 men getting all that shaved off and then seeing yourself for the first time? They didn't know each other. Who are you? It was an awful shock. And you'd be sitting beside somebody and so the father says, well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm Joe Doherty, or I'm, uh, what do you call it, Shanna Walsh, or I'm Martin Walsh, or whatever. Jesus Christ. The only time we seen the sky was once a month when we went on a visit. But we never, most, that was once, and maybe for a period of three minutes. Three minutes down the visit, three minutes back. I remember men saying that, no, I remember men uh, I was trying to describe how they, when they did if actually were able to look at the sky for a prolonged period of time more than three minutes that is the sky seemed to be running away from them like into a sort of what they caught uh, a point some uh, some point in the distance or some sort of point and we couldn't see the horizon obviously because we, 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 we was a 20 foot fence and it's, it's, like, it's like walking around the inside of a biscuit tin Men described the, 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 the sensation of seeing the sky as if it was running away into a sort of, what do you call it, a telescope, a telescopic point somewhere in the distance. But at the time we were dying, the doctor, Dr Ross, who was a prison doctor, I remember him well coming in. First of all, the doctor would come in with an MO, and the MO would explain to you the process of hunger strike and how that was going to impact upon your body. And he said there was a whole period of deterioration. A process was taking place right now. This same is with the MO on our cell. I'd be sitting there with a blanket around me, big massive beard and so on, and I was in hunger strike, and my food was at the door. You understand? And this MO, was a medical officer, would come in and say, do you realise... The, 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 the gravity of your decision. Do you understand what you're doing? Do you understand what's going to happen? Do you understand the process? And then he would relay to me what that process was. And it would be backed up and confirmed by the doctor in the presence of a chief or maybe an assistant governor and so on. I said at the time I did understand it, but I mean, obviously I didn't. I was well below par when I came into jail. Well below par. And then when I hit, 30, 30, when I hit the mid-30s, I, I, I realised it started to go down. And especially then, there was a slow deterioration. You know what I mean? A slow sort of going down. And then when I hit 40, I went down. I remember, I could actually remember I could feel my whole physical strength and all. Like, you know, I just wasn't up to it. I knew there was something was kicking in here. And I realised, you know, I'd done a bit of research on it too, and I realised that all of went through the shootings. I mean, I had my stomach blew out. I, I held my guts in my hand, my balls in my hand, and I could see my tea that I had that night. I remembered well, it was, <laughs> I remembered well, it was, it was a salad, a salad that I had, and it was only half digested, and I could see the, 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 lattice, the lattice, and it was the smell of the, the half-formed excrement, 
and, and the smell of burning blood, of course, and the smell of burning flesh, and the smell of terrible—that's my mate's burnt blood. But uh, I went through all that there, and I said to myself, "My God, you know, it's bound to impact me. It has to kick in sometime, and it did." And you know, uh, the doctor's—the doctor's words always rang back. His words have a a clarity, uh, an unwanted clarity about them today. When I feel like I, I, could, I, I am not fit for money on work now. Mm-hmm. If I went out and worked in the building, I'd be killed. And uh, that's been like quite a long time, you know. And now I'm 45 years of age, I'm now coming and hitting middle age, so to say, you know. And uh, I know for a fact that what has happened to me in the past, especially during the hunger strike, has impacted upon me in a big way. I have no doubt about that. Especially the past, past three years. No, five years, sorry. I'm now 45. But it's a tough way. Downward trend, big time. I found it a very, very difficult, horribly traumatic experience to watch those men on hunger strike. One, there was a, a feeling that we had failed them because our hunger strike hadn't achieved what we thought we had achieved and that we were saying those men are now having to do what we failed to do. There was that sense. Secondly, we knew very, very acutely the pain and the agony they were going through. Uh, even now, 20 years later, it remains one of the most traumatic periods of my life. Uh, and I've had some traumatic days over my life. Uh, as a matter of record, my three brothers died in the course of the Troubles. And while each death traumatised me greatly, it didn't have the same I protracted traumatic effect on me that the hunger strike period did. Uh, the knowledge of it is, is, has seared itself into my consciousness and when you talk about books um, normally server time, ten men dead, I have never read one of those books and I don't imagine that I ever will because I don't imagine that I ever could I, I can read about the ambush on Legal where my brother was shot I don't like it it certainly doesn't. It's, it's not anything that I take with any great relish, but I have read the accounts of the inquests and the events and that, but I've never read the inquests or the or, or the story of the hunger strikes because I just feel it too painful. And still, it's 20 years later, still doing. I don't, I don't envisage that particular situation changing greatly for the next 20 years if I live that long. Um... Men on the wing. The men lived with me on the wing. We were together twenty four hours a day. We spent endless hours talking, and on the wing with me for the last sort of certainly eighteen months of their lives. Um, Bobby Sands, Tom McElwee, Kevin Lynch, Martin Hurston, uh, and we talked. We all of us talked on that wing. Not just those men, but we all of us talked. We talked endlessly. Times we talked about politics. We were young men. Times we talked about football. We talked about the dances we had attended, the girls we had known, the schools we'd been to, uh, the things, all of those things, some of them uh, intellectual, bulk of them uh, trivial, that people together of the same age, young men together, talk about the concerns we had the bulk of them are relevant in, in, in many ways. And we talked about the, the, the passions of politics and we talked of our ideas and our thoughts and our hopes and we spent endless hours consoling one another after a brutal treatment. Uh, and we tried to talk each other's courage up again 
and then to see them taken away from us. It, it was in many ways like losing family members, members of a family. Um, the, the old ex-blanket men, and so we've, we've, many of us have greatly different opinions, but there still remains uh, an area that we can contact each other. I know for many years after, within the prison, it was a, there was a stamp on a blanket man that was long after the blanket had ended. And no matter how bitter the disagreements were, that there was almost a feeling, it was almost like watching a, like a wolf pack come together, that whenever we moved into wings together and over the years new people come into the prison and men went out, but invariably you could see the old blanket men almost almost like a wolf pack, the, the, the instinct to, 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 to group together, to herd together, because they, they felt almost so comfortable in each other's company. And so it was so traumatic when when the boys died, as they died, as they died slowly. As I say, it hasn't, in some ways it hasn't eased greatly, that, that memory or the pain over the years. <laughs> 